Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre, and tries to find an answer. Hi, Caroline. Hi. Uh, We are back on the true crime beat this week, um, but still kicking around the early part of the 20th century. Um, Listeners, if you've been with us for the last almost month now, we've been covering the Titanic disaster, and uh, today we're actually rewinding a few years to 1909 for the murder of one George Harry Storrs. Ooh, I've never heard of this one. Um, it is, I, I hadn't either until I found this book and it just had all the hallmarks of an ain't it scary, um, story, multiple suspects, multiple trials, um, some truly wild theories and suspects. You know what? We'll get into it, but I'm sure. But first let me acknowledge that source, that book that, uh, uh, turned me on to this whole crazy affair. Turn me on, Deadman. That would be, thank you, Paul, that would be <laughs> The Stabbing of George Harry Storrs, spoiler alert, by Jonathan Goodman. Not, gets right to the point in that title, doesn't it? Not John, but Jonathan Goodman, uh, 1983. Mm. And uh, Mr. Goodman lays out the murder as well as the investigation and the court proceedings in really exquisite and sometimes excruciating uh detail uh uh like like the courtroom scenes are are really both very long and uh very very interesting in this book so we're not going to be able to cover nearly everything that he does but um i think we're going to have a good time so did you find this book first and that kind of told you about the case or or how did you find out about the case Uh, i was looking for interesting unsolved murders uh, Mm. that had well recommended books uh, that had been (laughs) written on them and and uh, uh, this that must be a buzzfeed article somewhere well once i read um sort of a few of the particulars in this case uh, it caught my attention for the same reason it did the national british media um after the crime took place so uh george harry stores lived in Staleybridge, UK, which is a small um, milling town, basically. It's built around a a couple of mills, and uh, those mills all happened to be owned by the family of one George Harry Storrs. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1909, George was George Harry, sorry. It, it's, the name's used as if it's a hyphenate, although it's not hyphenated, like Billy Bob or something. Okay. So George Harry was just under six feet tall with um, what the author describes, what Goodman describes as bulbous ears. Oh, no. And a walrus mustache connected to uh, sideburns. So he had sort of the Civil War general, um, you know, full on mutton chops going and a receding hairline uh, by this time. How old was he? In 1909, he was 49 years old. Okay. George Harry's father, William Storrs, had been basically a contractor. He um, ran a two-man building crew, and he kind of did the planning uh, end of it, and eventually he built up a lucrative empire of different investments. Um, A pretty large construction company, along with mills and steamship companies that he had invested in, uh, contracts all over the country. Eventually, William died in 1893, and George Harry's mother died in 1900. Mm. Um, now he had two brothers, uh, his brother James, the older, the oldest and largest, 
called Big Jim Stores, was six foot three, and uh, was a director at the William Stores Sons and Company. But spent more of his time uh, on local kind of political pursuits. He was a local alderman uh, with the Liberal Party, and he was on the finance, education, highway, market, watch, sanitary, <laughs> gas works, library, and parliamentary committees. And he also had nine children. So he was... Uh, I'm exhausted just hearing about that. He, he was a busy guy. He had a third of the shares in the company because he was one of the three kids, but... Um, he had a third of the children in the town. <laughs> yeah, essentially. Um, he lived a few towns over from where George Harry did. Uh, George Harry's younger brother, William Henry, was a lifelong bachelor booze hound um, in a Thomas Era mess, kind of, uh, when we were watching the John Adams miniseries, uh, <laughs> kind of a way. William Henry never held a job, um, but was coddled by his parents and eventually inherited the family house, uh, which was called Fernbank, when his parents died, uh, despite being the youngest. Um, he was, and that was in 1900, but unfortunately by 1902, um, he was dead, um, nope. from drinking. So it's, uh, yikes. Uh, and after that, James immediately moved into the house. Like, well, this should have been mine all along. Okay. Um, George Harry, meanwhile, was all in on the company, basically his whole life. And after his father's death, he expanded the empire to a conglomerate that included cotton, building and contracting, plumbing, timber, brick manufacture. I mean, that's really vertical integration where he's, he's got all of the construction materials, he's doing yeah. the projects, um, he's transporting the stuff. Um, but George Harry himself rarely left Staley Bridge unless he had deals to go do in Manchester or Liverpool. He moved the offices into a mill that was acquired by the company right in town and... Um, well, as, as you'll see, when he buys his home at Gorse Hall in Staley Bridge, he'll, he'll be just a couple blocks walk away from work, which is just to George Harry's tastes. Uh, so is he the owner of the company now? Yeah, he is the chief executive after his father dies. And he's not the oldest. No, James is, but James is busy with all of his kids. and. Uh, uh, so James uh, is okay with it. He's not like jealous. No, yeah, James is a one-third owner in the company and... Um, probably doing a lot for the company's interests with all of his uh, political uh, glad handing. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I don't think anyone was mad about this arrangement. Um, but George Harry was kind of a nerd, right? Keep, kept his nose to the grindstone and uh, really grew this company. Um, he lived with his parents at Fernbank until he was 31 years old um, when he finally got married and moved into a house in Staley Bridge, again called Gorse Hall. Gorse. Gorse. A gorse. Um, more about that in a second. Georgia belonged to no social clubs, which were very popular and populous, even in a small town like Staley Bridge. Well, I think his brother is in every social club, so maybe he doesn't want to hang out with them all the time. Well, the political clubs, I don't get the sense that any of them were really partiers. Mm. Um, George Harry never went out drinking and never attended the theater, except for the yearly Christmas pantomimes, which he was known to attend with either his mother his father, or both. I played Jesus in an Easter shadow play once because I had the longest hair. <laughs> but I feel like Jesus didn't have hair down to his butt, so I don't know why it was me. You're just lucky they weren't doing hair. That's yeah, true. Well, that would have been a little perverse with a bunch of fourth graders, but... I take it back. <laughs> George Harry was uh, said to be somewhat cheap, even with the collection plate as that church. 
Um, but he was talked about as a good boss by his employees, even after he had died and they had no real reason to lie about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of George Harry's few friends was Robert Innes, who was a lawyer for the various business interests uh, that George owned, who he called on socially from time to time at his little brownstone in town. Mm-hmm. And it was through the Innes's that George Harry met Maggie Middleton, two years older than him, who George married in 1891. Okay, so this is the lady that got him out of his parents' house. Yep, when he's 31 years old, uh, she's 33 years old. Oh, an older woman. And his parents purchased a an enormous gray, like monolithic structure called- the Gorse. Called Gorse Hall. Mm. Uh, which had been empty since the death of its previous inhabitant almost 30 years prior. But again, George was just psyched because it was a quarter mile from the office and he was going to be able to walk to work. The couple had no children, but they did take on Maggie's niece by marriage, Marion, um, after both of Marion's parents had died. Uh, Marion Lindley was her last name. And Marion Lindley grew into a more active member of kind of local society than either one of the parents. Some of the fancier, older people saw her as kind of uppity and pushing her way into the, you know, um, upper echelons of local society. But most people found her uh, super agreeable and precocious and interesting. Yeah. So she was a fixture at balls and and things like that once she was old enough. Um, Now, most of the rooms in Gorse Hall was a giant manor house for only the three of them and their staff. So most of the rooms in the house were left locked and undecorated. And the only full-time staff they had was a cook, a housemaid, a coachman, and the coachman's wife. Which sounds like a lot of people to work in a house where three people live. But, um, you know, given just what rich British British people were doing in general Mm -hmm. at the time and place. Okay. It's kind of a a spooky background of like, we don't go into that room, you know. Uh, Yeah, almost like the... Amityville Horror, when they start just locking that one room where the, where the with the flies. Yeah, or like Downton Abbey mixed with, you know, Beauty and the Beast. Well, unfortunately, there is no Enchanted Rose uh, mm-hmm. in any of these rooms, and um, they won't play into the mystery as much as you would you would hope that they um, that they would. But they do probably give a sort of spectral feel to the house as you walk through it, and half of it is just inaccessible and unused. Mm-hmm. Now, as of summer 1903, and on through 1909, the coachman at the house was a James Worrell. His wife's name was Sarah, and Worrell was described as short, chubby, rosy-cheeked, and he was, from the time he was hired, doggedly loyal and conscientious about his employment and his employer. Uh, And I guess they had a pretty relaxed relationship. They would take early morning walks together and talk about both their lives. Like George Harry was interested in what was going on with um, the coachman and his wife. And um, so they had kind of a nice... It was maybe George Harry's only other friend besides the lawyer, Robert Innes, Mm -hmm. is um, his coachman, James Worrell. Well, that's cute. Now, there was no phone at Gorse Hall. Uh, In fact, there were only 50 phones in town in 1909. Mm Mm-hmm because this was just 19 years after the first phone company came to town. Uh, And in fact, in 1909, the mayor, the chief constable, the police station line downstairs from the chief constable, and the fire brigade HQ, which was a couple blocks down the road, uh, all shared the same phone line. Okay. (laughs) So uh, communication was different. Sure. 
And so uh, James Worrell, the coachman, ran into the Staley Bridge police station, panting and sweating just before 10 p.m. on September 10th of 1909, yelling that there had been a shooting at Gorse Hall. Oh, no. Now, George Harry Storrs was one of the most important people in town, if not the most important, richest person in town. So a sergeant and four constables were sent on foot right away. Um, it's about a 15-minute jog, mostly uphill. Jesus. Um, so the, All right. Where is he? So the police huff and puff up to the door, um, brushing scones out of their <laughs> mustaches. And uh, the housemaid, Eliza Cooper, 28 years old, let police in and showed them into the dining room, where George Harry and Maggie Storrs and a woman who was staying with them named Georgina McDonald, she was a widow friend of Maggie's, um, were sitting in the living room, sitting in the dining room, sorry, waiting for them. Okay. Uh, George Harry had apparently been home all week with the flu, so he didn't go to work that day. And this is the story that he gave police. He said Maggie and the widow McDonald were sitting <laughs> sitting at the dining table waiting for supper. Um, and George Harry was sitting in his armchair by the fire reading a book when George saw when George Harry saw a shadowy figure outside of the window. And he moved toward the window to investigate. And then a voice shouted, Hands up or I'll shoot. Oh. And at the same time, as if to emphasize the sentence, uh, a glass pane in the window shattered. And a gun barrel poked into the room. Okay, entering with some drama. Don't know, yeah, entrances with pizzazz, uh, as our friends on Two Old Queens would say. Mm-hmm. Not our friends, we do like them. Oh. We have a parasocial relationship. <laughs> Listen, when you find podcasts during quarantine, uh, they become they become like family. So in pokes this gun barrel. And George Harry said that he continued toward the window and yanked the blinds down. And just then, two shots rang out. And after they all sort of froze for a moment with the bullets, uh, George Harry said, I'm going out there. So the, the, the bullets didn't come in the room. Just two shots rang out. Okay, okay. Then George Harry said, I'm going out there. And he started <laughs> making for the door, and his wife grabbed his arm and went, No, George, please. She asked him not to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Eliza came back in, the housemaid, mm-hmm. and George said, okay, okay. He had her open the door a few inches and stick her hand out with the handbell and ring so that the coachman would know to come. Okay. I thought he was going to be like, all right, all right. You go out. <laughs> um, so the coachman, uh, Worrell, came and they got police. And police searched the grounds, both Staley Bridge police and neighboring Dukenfield police. Not Dukenfield, uh-huh. where you go take your dukes. That's exactly. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to. I'm sure we it's. We have a few Dukenfields in the back that Poe loves. We probably have some listeners in Dukenfield. Oh, I, I, and, I... and thank you. I've been to Intercourse, Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm not making fun. I'm just enjoying. Um, So Duke and Field Police were on scene, too, because the Staley Bridge police captain had said, wait, where's this happening? And then checked a map. And then he did the old, like, on the wire season two, like, oh, actually, uh, most of the property's in our town, but the Uh. house, the house falls over the line. And this is uh, really Duke and Field's responsibility. Um, anyway, officers from both departments, uh, I should say constables from both departments found no sign of the intruder. 
and by the time Worrell had walked back from the station up the hill to the house, a crowd had assembled at Gorse Hall, uh, chattering about the night's events, but this dispersed in just a couple hours. Hmm. How strange. Now, after dawn, police were able to do another search of the house with, you know, the benefit of light and stuff, and they found no bullet holes, no shotgun pellets, and also no powder on any of the broken glass that was in the room or on the blinds or on the windowsill. Mm-hmm. Uh, George Harry said that this meant the shots just must have been fired outside of the window and not into the house. Yeah, into the air or something. Um, the police opinion on the ground seemed to be that no shots actually were fired. Um, that maybe the sound of shattering glass was mistaken for gunshots by the by the people in the room. Uh, or maybe they had just fully imagine, imagined it. Yeah, all of them. Superintendent Crokin of Dukenfield uh, added that, Mr. Storr is not an unpopular <laughs> man. No motive can be assigned. It is scarcely reasonable to believe the object was, uh, was robbery, as it's unusual for a thief to attempt an entrance at such an early hour of the night through the window of a front room, lighted, and where people were. Oh, such being the case, if shots were fired, then in my opinion, they were fired by an idiot or a person who was drunk. Apologies to our Irish listeners. My God, is Crokin in the room? Superintendent Crokin was, was Irish born, so... Uh, well, they're your people, you're allowed. Yeah, but it's still, I'm sure that's a slaughtered accent. Oh, it's as, be- as good as anything on Titanic, Sorry, I think. it's a slaughtered broke. <laughs> the next day, uh, the Dukenfield police... The next day, a Dukenfield police inspector interviewed George Harry. And uh, George Harry said he had no suspects in mind. He confirmed there were no recently fired employees who he thought would be out to get him. Then the inspectors were on their way out. And George Harry went, oh, uh, one more thing. And he said he had an idea and a request. And the idea was that he was going to now install a really fucking loud bell on top of Gorse Hall that would be audible from the police station, again, a 15-minute jog away. Like a church bell. Like a ch- Exactly, a church bell. Okay. So that he could ring it if the re- intruder returned. Okay, I mean, rich people solutions, I guess. That was the idea, and the request was, would you guys please post an armed guard at my house at all times? Indefinitely? Indefinitely. Wow. And the Duke and Field cop said, these are great ideas, sir. Bye. But, <laughs> well, the bell's going to be more audible in Staley Bridge, isn't it? And your property's mostly in Staley Bridge, so those officers should probably respond to the bell and patrol the grounds. Brother. So uh, they handed the responsibility off to Staley Bridge police, and from then on, two constables with routes that were nearby anyway sort of just extended their patrols to run across the Gorse Hall grounds every night. All right. Well, it seems nice of them, I guess. <laughs> right? I mean, they, I, what do you think? Are they within their rights to just go like, we can't do that for every citizen? Uh, yeah. But I mean, this is possibly, it sounds like the richest guy in town. This might be the biggest house in town. You know, you want to keep that kind of person happy, I guess. It's true. Meanwhile, uh, for his own precautions, stores had Worrell close all the shutters on the windows in the house. Mm. And they started locking the back door as soon as it got dark every day. When the bell arrived, it was installed on the roof with the rope dropping through the ceiling into the attic uh, running right next to the chimney. 
And poor Mr. Whirl had to go upstairs and, and hang off of it like LeFou would. Or Quasimodo. Well, of course. Uh, to mix our Disney movies. George Harry also bought a guard dog, which I, I guess was an Iredale Collie mix. I don't know what Airedales or Iredales look like. Oh, it's one of these. What does it look like? It's one of these really uh, uh, sort of wiry looking guys with the beard. Yes, that's what I thought. Okay, so I'm right. So it was a mixture of... Between that and a collie. That okay. and a collie. They, George Harry said that he wanted a big mean dog. Oh. And then he got this big mean Airedale collie mix and he ended up having to return it to the guy he bought no. it from a few days later um, because it was too mean. Oh, okay. He was just like, oh, I can't do anything with this. All right. Then, so that was that. So then you just gave up on the dog thing. Correct. Okay. It, it seems that way. Uh, well, James Storr's wife, uh, George Harry's brother, James's wife demanded that they, too, should have an armed guard. Well, we're aren't we important? <sighs> Typical uh, family politics. But it doesn't seem like anyone ever listened to or seriously considered that request. Mm. And so things continued, as normal, quietly in Staley Bridge, until Friday, October 29th, almost exactly seven weeks to the day after the bell was installed. Sounds like an ooky spooky evening. It is almost Halloween night. I can confirm that. Yes. And the bell shattered the neighborhood silence. It literally jerked people out of their sleep all over town. Like people miles away were in a, a full slumber and bolted upright in their beds. Oh yeah. I lived like, half a mile maybe from a church and those things yeah they'll wake you up for sure uh two policemen were on or near the grounds at the time they obviously heard the bell it was like ear splitting on the property and they found each other uh found it was basically too loud to talk and started up the walk together now, meanwhile, a sergeant and a constable down at the police station strapped on their helmets and started the uh, grueling 15-minute jog up the hill. The... <sighs> All right. What? Who's ringing the bell? What? <laughs> the police found, when they got to the top of the hill, George Harry Storrs standing on the front steps. The doors to the manor opened behind him. He was holding an oil lamp in one hand and looking at a pocket watch. Okay. And as the constables arrived, he nodded thoughtfully at the watch and then turned and yelled something to somebody inside that the police couldn't see or hear, and the tolling stopped. Okay. And then George Harry welcomed the constables in and explained that he'd decided to oh, test the bell out. Oh. Just making sure it worked. Get I the desired feeling, response, don't you know? I have a feeling this is going to backfire on old George Harry. Um, he then may or may not, tales differ, and have invited all of the officers in for mold ale, which might have softened the blow a little bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is worth noting that at this point, more police were assembled at the store's house than patrolling the streets of Staley Bridge. Great. And you're right, Carrie, if George hadn't rung the bell on that Friday in October, he might have had a better outcome three days later on November 1st, uh, which happened to be election night in the UK that year. Always a busy night, according to Jonathan Goodman, for provincial English police around the turn of the century. Elections were pretty uh, raucous affairs with 
partisans drinking in the streets and arguing and getting into fights, depending on how contentious the election was, just trying to help keep polling places from being overrun, helping keep parties from turning into riots. Mm -hmm. The police were busy. And while there were no elections in Staley Bridge this year, there were no local offices up for election, um, but the officers were still going to be needed to help keep the peace in other towns, in Dukenfield and in Ashton, you know, just to keep a cap on the partisans, basically. Okay. I believe you. Now, unbeknownst to George Harry Storrs, that meant that the house was unguarded on election night for the first time since he had called about the um, gunshots. Mm-hmm. Which, to be fair, the police had been patrolling the place nightly for almost two months now to zero effect. And they were probably a, a little annoyed at the guy for, for waking them all up the night before or a few nights before. Well, if I was a villain, I would think that this would be a, a perfect night to do villainous things because everyone else is going to be distracted. Well, maybe someone did. Well, I know someone did. <laughs> I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements. And I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. I, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. At 5 p.m. on November 1st, George Harry Storrs left his offices at the Aqueduct Mill and walked home alone. At the time, the Dukenfield Town Council was threatening to sue William Storrs' sons and company over some um, sedimentation tanks that they had made that the town claimed weren't up to snuff, and maybe that's what was occupying his mind. Uh, I I don't know. We don't know what he did between 5 o'clock and 9 o'clock p.m., But by about 9.15, he was sitting at a card table in the parlor playing Patience, which is a solitaire game. Okay. Maggie and Marion were sitting at the dinner table, uh, which Eliza had just set for supper. And Eliza, the maid, left the room and passed the cook, Mary Evans, who was just coming upstairs with some milk. And Mary turned into the kitchen to find a man crouching by the door. And she remembered saying out loud, Oh, Worrell! How you frightened me. Oh, dear. And then she realized this, it wasn't James Worrell. Mm-mm, not even Ernest P. <laughs> You'd wish, right? I would. This man was taller, thinner, and younger than Worrell, with a thin mustache. And, much worse than even, a th- even the thinnest, dirtiest stash, was the revolver he had pointed at the cook. Oh, I thought you were going to be like, he had a soul patch or something. (laughs) 
and he said, say a word and I shoot. Mm. Now, this is a brave cook. Mary Evans didn't say a word at first, but she threw the milk can to the ground and ran out the kitchen through the door, almost knocking the maid over in the hallway as she yelled, there's a man in the house. Mm-hmm. Yikes. Eliza said she was almost knocked over by the cook and then almost knocked over by the man chasing the cook who both just blew right past her. Mm-hmm. And then she just sort of went out into the yard. Like, state of shock, didn't know what to do. I mean, fair enough. That's probably what I would do. Do what you got to do, Eliza. Uh, We'll check back in with her in a minute. By (laughs) by the time Mary got to the parlor, they had heard her yelling, of course, so everyone was on their feet, and George Harry moved straight toward the hall, toward the intruder, with both Maggie and the cook following behind him. And now, in the hall, the young intruder pointed his revolver and yelled, according to Maggie and Mary later, Now I've got you! Or, according to Marion, who was also in the room, it was, I've got you now. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Did they recognize this guy? They did not. Okay. Interesting. Whichever one the guy yelled, George lunged for the intruder as if that was his cue to attack and grabbed his gun hand. Ballsy. Now, this front hall they were standing in was lined in the manner of um, a rich, expansive front hall with vaulted ceilings with swords and also a couple of shillelaghs from the stores' honeymoon in Ireland. Kind of a sweet little reminder. Here's these big spiky clubs from Ireland. (laughs) Aren't we so in love? And now Maggie grabbed one of those from the wall and moved to club. She was standing behind the guy, holding it up to club him in the back of the head, but didn't swing the, the shillelagh for fear of hitting George, Harry. Oh, wow. Uh... Now, this is a weird turn. The intruder apparently saw the club and fear flashed across his face and he sort of raised his hands and moved toward her slowly with his gun barrel in the air saying, I will not shoot. She was allowed to get close enough to him to snatch the gun away. Okay. At which point George Harry yelled for his wife to get upstairs and ring the bell and she handed him the shillelagh before heading up the stairs. She stashed the revolver under a rug on her way up to the attic. Now, meanwhile, Marion Lindley had just run straight out the door, down the driveway, and off property. Yeah, she's like a kid, right? Yeah, she's Young a woman. Yeah, get out of there. Mary Evans, the cook, uh, also ran off. She get out of there. But she was running to get James Worrell, which is actually useful. Oh, yeah. But she... <laughs> kind of interesting and funny and sad but the um just the rules were so ingrained into her that she didn't take the short path out the front door she went uh, she had around to the back way and through the kitchen and through the servants entrance to go and, uh, and well it's like on the titanic things uh, things are so classified well uh i don't even know if that's how you say that but it, everything was so just set in their ways especially in terms of class people would lose their lives because of it Well, Mary picked up Eliza Cooper on the way, who was still stunned in the yard. And Mrs. Worrell, James Worrell's wife, answered the door at the stables and said her husband was in town having a drink with her brother. Why did they ask? Mm -hmm. And it was just then, her last words, they said, were nearly drowned out by the first clangs of the bell as Maggie finally reached it upstairs. Maggie's pretty brave. I mean, obviously George Harry is, but I mean, grabbing that shillelagh and then like running upstairs instead of outside, like. 
there's so much interesting behavior that is yeah. so hard to explain across this whole scenario. Well, I mean, it's just it's brave. Like you don't you don't hear ladies uh, taking things in hand like that at this time. Meanwhile, in town, Worrell was getting a couple of refills at the Grosvenor Hotel when he heard the bell clanging from clear across town. He uh, told his brother-in-law, oh, they must be having another practice. Uh, oh, no. But the brother-in-law did notice he finished his drink very quickly, said goodnight, and hurried away. Okay. Meanwhile, a couple of pigeon racers... They're called pigeon fanciers. It was a big. It was a much bigger thing back in the turn of that century than the turn Obviously. of this one. Um, but you know, ra- homing pigeons. They would race homing pigeons. Okay, that's and raise cute. them and breed them. Um, so the it was what they liked to do. Um, but these guys had actually gotten in trouble with George. He had complained to the local police before about them crossing over his property on the way to check their pigeon pens. <laughs> Anyhow, on this night they were on his property near his property checking their pigeon pens. And uh, they heard the ringing of the bell and obs- walked over to uh, watch from the lawn. Okay. Just trying to give you a picture of everything going on here. Okay, yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Marion, the teenage girl, had reached the bottom of the hill mm-hmm. and run into the local Oddfellows Hall. And the best she could do was whisper, My uncle is being murdered. Damn. She was then subjected to, it sounds like between 20 and 40 minutes of the members arguing over whether she was allowed, like whether they should let her be in there because women weren't allowed in the club. (sighs) Again, it's this bullshit rules system. It's getting people killed. Finally, somebody showed up who, who, with both the authority and the sense to go like, stop arguing about this. We need like eight of you get over there. And um, some one, one guy got Marion a brandy and eight other guys went over to Gorse Hall. Okay, well, it took them long enough. Uh, they arrived just after James Worrell finally did. Is the bell still ringing? It was still ringing, and it was too loud for the conver- for conversation to be made. <laughs> okay. And, and so the men used hand signals to arrange four of them staying in front of the house, while four more went around to try the back door, because the front door was locked. Now, a man named Henry Heald, if I'm mispronouncing that, sorry, Henry. I can't imagine Henry's still with us, but... Uh, you know, sorry, Henry. Henry Heald said that he smelled the blood in the kitchen before he saw it. Oh, God. As he entered, there was a clothes horse. You know, I, I, I never... I don't RuPaul? Think I don't think I'd ever encountered this term other than like for t- talking about a fashionable person. Yeah. Um, but we have one in there, like a, a laundry rack. Oh, that's what that's called? Yeah. Okay. A laundry rack was strewn on the floor with the linens on it just kind of all over the place, uh, spattered in blood. George Harry Storrs lay in a pool of blood on the floor. His head was near the legs of the kitchen table, and his legs were facing toward the door, toward the men as they entered. Uh, His shillelagh was discarded on the table next to a tall earthenware jug and a floral-patterned bowl of water. Heald was relieved to find that Storrs was still alive and, in fact, still conscious. And as soon as he saw the men enter the room, he said, Where's Mrs. Storrs? Where's my wife? Heald asked him if there was a phone, and he said no. Heald asked who attacked him. And George Harry gave no answer. But Heald said that he felt like George Harry could have answered if he wanted to. 
I don't know why. He didn't say what gave him that feeling or impression, but he felt like there was something being unsaid. Well, maybe he was like, well, I know it's a tall, skinny guy, but I don't know who it is. Like he's considering how useful is the information that I have. Um, Instead, George Harry asked about his wife again. Mm. I know this is going to end badly, but I I, I don't want it to because uh, he seems like a a pretty decent, brave dude, and and she's a a brave lady, and it's just bumming me out. I I know how it's going to end, but I I hope I didn't. I wish I didn't. Another man named Richard Ashton asked again who had done it and got the same response. Just, where's my wife? Uh, Healed and Richard Ashton loosened George Harry's shirt and dabbed his face with water. They found that his only visible wounds were a three-quarter inch cut across the nose and slashes across the palm of his his left hand, like defensive wounds. Um, But healed figured because of the blood and the ragged holes in George Harry's clothes, uh, there must be more stab wounds underneath. And meanwhile, yeah. Meanwhile, two more men had finally gone upstairs to find Mrs. Stores and had to like physically pull her fingers away from the bell rope to get her to stop pulling. Wow. This was half an hour after she had started ringing the bell and she just basically collapsed in exhaustion and fear and terror and, you know, uh, misery and all that stuff. This poor lady. Wow. They helped her to bed. Now the police finally arrived on scene. Uh, first, Constable David Buckley entered through the back door. Uh, he passed Mr. Heald and Mr. Ashton on the way. Uh, he was a pretty new officer in a pretty small town, and he said he'd never seen so much blood in his entire life before this moment. Mm. George Harry was still struggling to speak. I want to see my wife. Oh, Lord, please help me. The constable knelt nearby and uh, asked George who the man was. And George uh, repeated, I don't know, several times. And then asked for brandy. Now, by the time the brandy was found, two or three other cops had entered the room. And a tearful James Worrell was now standing outside, saying over and over again, I thought it was only practice. Oh, he's blaming himself. Finally, a constable cut away George Harry's clothing to reveal deep cuts on the left arm and stab wounds in the left torso. Uh, He was stabbed a total of about 16 times. Was it with the shillelagh or was it with something else? No, it was a knife. Okay. Eliza Cooper was sent for linens to try to bandage up these wounds. And meanwhile, this whole time, George was groaning in pain, asking for his wife, and complaining that his back really hurt. Hmm. Um, Just let him see his wife. Finally, he asked to sit up and they brought in a couch into the kitchen for him. Um, But by that time, he was lapsing in and out of consciousness. Uh, At this point, Maggie was finally brought in. But George wasn't awake. Mm. And she saw him, fainted, was revived with brandy, fainted again. And then the police just carried her back upstairs to bed. God, what a horror just uh, absolute horror. And then a doctor got there at 10 o'clock, but he said by the time he got there, George was asking for air. He said, I need air. And the doctor could see there was nothing to be done here. So he just had them move the couch over toward the window so George could get some more air. And five minutes later, he was gone. Sad. Meanwhile, more police arrived. Uh, Captain Bates, the commanding officer at Staley Bridge Police had finally gotten to the station around 9.30 
and called Dukenfield Station to say there seemed to have been a break-in. Okay. Uh, Superintendent Krogan, you remember him at Dukenfield, um, set out right away, jumped right in the uh, cart. This is actual an actual horse-pulled police wagon. And on the way there, galloping along the road, uh, he found a doctor friend of the doctor who was already at the store's house. And that guy said, oh, are you on your way to the attempted murder? <laughs> and this was the first time Krogan had heard that there was an attempted murder involved. And so he said, oh, you better jump in. And they both in. headed up to Gorse Hall. Mm-hmm. Um, they both arrived at five minutes after 10 to find out that it was now an actual murder, not an attempted murder. Mm-hmm. Captain Bates and Superintendent Krogan or- ordered their men to search the grounds and check for suspicious characters at Staley Bridge's one and only railway station. You know, just people that are really into pigeons, things like that. <laughs> um, we'll get to them in a second. I'm sure. Um, men from the morning shift were woke, called and woken up and told to hit the streets right away. And a major from the Dukenfield department, who kept bloodhounds just for personal fun, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, was called to see if the department could borrow them. And um, by the way, the following day, this guy would come with his his two bloodhounds, and the bloodhounds basically did a lap around the house and stopped twice at the same rhododendron bush. And so this Major Richardson said, well, there's no doubt about it. The killer lay here in those bushes for some time. Must have been waiting for an opportunity. Then he left, and then he sent the Dukenfield police a bill for $20 the next day. <laughs> I mean, were these trained I bloodhounds? I don't know like why. Poe's po a hound. He loves to sniff, but he's not trained I don't to know find why I, people. I don't know why I gave him that accent. It's probably because he has bloodhounds. But, <laughs> but he sounded more like this, didn't he? I'm sure he Probably did. not. Based on evidence at the scene, police began to form a hypothesis. Um, the window to the scullery, which is a little tiny kitchen just for washing dishes, mm-hmm. um, was broken. And there was a dented tin uh, wash basin found outside of that window, which police figured had been used to break it from the inside. Uh, There were also blood marks on both the inside and the outside of the scullery door. And so here was what police thought. Um, The last time we left them, if you will, they were in the front hall, right? Mm -hmm. So George Harry Storrs and his assailant struggle into the kitchen with the shillelagh. Um, George pushes this guy into the scullery and locks the door to trap him there. Hmm. So he can get help. Couldn't that just be the the way the guy got in? Is through the scullery from the outside? Because the back door was locked. The back door wasn't locked when the uh, searchers arrived. Oh, because you said that every night they would start to lock the back door. Oh, as soon as it got dark. dark. That's true. Oh, that's interesting. So you think he might have come in through the scullery? Well, where where was the wash basin? On the inside? It was on the outside. Yeah, so he uses that as like a little stool to hop in through the window. It, that's how it gets dented under his weight. And then he, he scrapes himself on broken glass, kind of crawling in through the window. Oh, that's not bad. It could be. Although you you would have to have that. It's pretty unsecure to have that scullery door open, I guess, if there's just a glass window back there. But that doesn't mean they didn't make that mistake. The way the police figured it, George Harry overpowers the guy, shoves him into the scullery, locks the door. The assailant breaks the scullery window with the wash basin, climbs out, cutting himself on the way, and then re-enters through the open back door and attacks George Harry, who is now either standing or lying in the kitchen from previous injuries. Hmm. 
I still like my theory, but... <laughs> hey, we, we're, we'll talk about all kinds of theories. I'm sure. Uh, meanwhile, Thomas Cottrell and Matthew Greenwood, the pigeon racers, were found by constables who were searching the grounds. There was no blood on them, and police took them in for questioning just in case and released them. By the time the doctors finished their initial examination of the body and left, Marion was back, sitting behind her sleeping aunt in her bedroom. Hmm. <sighs> Poor Marion. I mean, she loses her parents, and now this happens, and so much trauma. Oh, yeah. No, it's uh, it's awful. She seems to roll with the whole thing pretty, pretty well. Marion strikes me as an effective person. We'll spend plenty more time with her. Okay. Now, as it would happen, police would get their first suspect that very same night. Oh, who is it? When a nearby Ashtonboro constable arrested a suspicious character who had come back to his lodging house just after 10.30 p.m. The man had fresh wounds on his hands and his chin and bloodstains on his leather apron. <gasps> it's leather apron. Uh, the guy said he was a bell hanger and that he had gotten hurt working, and then he brought in some witnesses and his story checked out, and the police had to let him go. I don't know. Bell hanger sounds like a euphemism, like... The bell was ringing. I don't know. It seems it seems too neat. Um, soon, there were many other suspects, obviously, who came and went in an investigation like this. And the first steps of police were to round up all of the locals who had been convicted of violent crimes and question them. Um, at one point, there was like a busker. He's described as an itinerant concertina player. So he's <laughs> just walking around with a little little piano playing, playing music for people to pay him. And... Um, he had apparently been seen playing at a bar with a real jacked up face on on Monday night after the murder. Mm-hmm. Um, but nothing came of that either. The guy was able to prove he had been in a bicycle accident. And then presumably he moved to Williamsburg, this concertina playing <laughs> Busking bicyclist. bicyclist. Also, like, how do you prove that you were in a bicycle accident? I don't know. <laughs> okay. But that guy wasn't, it wasn't the guy. Okay. I just thought it was interesting that he was an itinerant concertina player. I love the, the word itinerant with that. <laughs> um, so the county's three quarries and then the ponds were dragged for signs of the killer or maybe the murder weapon, which had never turned up. The suspect had been described by the eyewitnesses as 25 to 27 years old, pale, between 5'6 and 5'8 inches. It's not that tall. No. I guess pretty, tall, well, not even for the time. No, it's not that tall. Just under average for the time, maybe? Hmm. Thin-featured with a slight mustache. Everyone except Mrs. Storrs specifically identified something peculiar about his eyes. Couldn't quite put a finger on it? or Three of the four women said there was something peculiar about his eyes. There's something peculiar about his eyes, though. Couldn't tell you what it is. Police also quickly got a hold of the revolver that Maggie had stashed under the rug upstairs. Mm. The brand stamped above the barrel was the American Bullock. And the gun appeared to have been made useless by the removal of the swivel pin between the hammer and the main spring. Hmm. Uh, a gunsmith who inspected it on behalf of the police said it looked like a gun that had been um, that couldn't be fired. But maybe that somebody had made to look like it could be fired by stuffing. Um, th there was one rifle cartridge cut down and stuffed into one of the chambers, and that was the only ammunition in the gun. 
Is that something that you would have to like sit down and do, or could that have happened in the tussle? Oh no! Like, uh, like the pin fall out or something. The trigger spring was also missing, and the extracting rod was bent. Oh! It was the gunsmith's opinion that the gun was totally useless. Okay, but it looked like it was useful. It did. Okay. Although there was dust in the other four chambers of the five-chamber revolver, um, indicating the gun hadn't been fired since at least August. Hmm. Um, also, weirdly, there were seven purposeful, equidistant marks or scratches on the barrel. Hmm. So, very distinctive gun. And the gunsmith said he'd never seen one like it. He'd never heard of the brand. It was probably Belgian. Photos were distributed throughout the press, the National Police Bulletin, and in the local papers. But only one man in the whole country thought he might recognize the gun. Who's that? That man was a stage manager at the Royal Theater in the nearby town of Oldham, who said about six weeks before the murder, a young man in blue overalls had tried to sell him a very similar gun as a prop. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Um, now, by the day after the murder, the hotel, single hotel, and all the boarding houses in Staley Bridge were full of reporters from London, Manchester, and elsewhere. Um, they were tantalized by the fantastic elements of the case and pretty quickly became frustrated with the lack of interesting tidbits or progress in the police investigation. I mean, there's just so many questions. Um, yeah, so, so I mean... Before a couple of weeks had gone by, many papers were actively criticizing the police investigation, saying this thing would never be solved, and using the case as a springboard to criticize the British police more generally. Uh, Newspapers also speculated broadly about the motives of the crime. Yeah. Robbery was dismissed out of hand. Because nothing was robbed. Because nothing was taken, and also, well... Um, most papers just came to the conclusion that this was a revenge slaying or something else by somebody who had known George Harry's stores. Well, it's interesting that he knows George, but George clearly didn't know him or didn't appear to, um, nor did anyone that George was close with. Well, no one George was close with recognized him for sure, but we couldn't ask George afterward. Oh, he said that he didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. But also uh, he might've reacted like he knew him. None of the other witnesses said that he did, so how strange. Okay. The Daily Telegraph suggested that, quote, the crime was committed by a blackmailer, and the murder was not the primary object of the visit to the mansion. In support of this theory, it is urged that if murder was really intended, the man who committed it would not have used the harmless revolver as his first line of attack and reserved his knife until he was in a corner, but would have used his deadliest weapon at once. Of course, it must be assumed that Mr. Storrs knew the assailant. It is quite possible that when the two men met in the darkened passage, Mr. Storrs had no idea who the intruder was, and that he did not discover his identity until after the revolver had been dropped and the members of the household had hurried from the room to raise the alarm. To accept this theory, is it is not necessary to suppose that Mr. Storrs was other than an innocent victim of the blackmailer. It is clear the assailant knew his way about the place, otherwise he could not have escaped the way he did. And it is equally clear that either he or his confederate had watched the house during the six dreary weeks the police had given special protection to the mansion. The murder was committed the first night the constables were withdrawn, and only a person who had paid particular attention to the place 
would know that there had been a temporary break in the special vigil of the constables. Hmm. I agree with some of that, but I don't know where they're getting blackmailer unless they're just assuming that because he's wealthy. Yes. But it does seem pretty likely to me that murder was not the main thing here or else he would have had a working gun unless he really preferred to bring a knife to the gunfight. Mm -hmm. Um, But it seems like he's trying to scare this guy somehow. And he started, he might've started with the window. I'm assuming that's related and and that whole thing. And then, um, then wanted to intimidate him some other way now. And things broke bad, I guess. But that's what happens when you just like attack a man in a house full of people. I don't, what is uh, weird. Baffling. Yeah. Hopefully we'll find out. Hopefully we'll be able to shed a little more light on the motivations here. Mm, I have a feeling not. You did say this was unsolved. Oh, I shouldn't spoil you like that. The funeral took place on Thursday the 4th. And it was apparently well attended. This is from another local paper. Some of the mills closed to give the work people the opportunity of watching the proceedings. As the morning wore on, the crowd in Grosvenor Street increased, and by the time the solemn procession left the hall, there were a tremendous number of people in Albert Square. The hearse containing the body was drawn by two plumed black horses. On the coffin reposed a magnificent cross, which was Mrs. Storr's last tribute to her devoted husband. The procession was headed by a large number of work people, men and women and following the hearse came close upon 20 coaches containing the chief mourners and leading public men of the district. Another coach was filled with beautiful floral emblems. The greatest respect was shown for the murdered man, and as the cortege emerged from the drive, the people, who in Albert Square alone numbered many hundreds, bared their heads, while others who knew Mr. Storrs intimately were moved to tears. All along the mile-long route, the thoroughfares were densely crowded. In the vicinity of St. Paul's Churchyard, an even greater crowd was assembled. The road was impassable, and that tram service had to be temporarily delayed. It can be safely said that tens of thousands of people watched the funeral. The blinds of the houses and shops all along the route were lowered as a mark of respect. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we're going to find something out, but he seemed like a decent dude. Um, Mrs. Storrs appeared to still be in shock, and she was seen being helped around at and after the funeral. Uh, afterward, family and friends retired to Fern Bank, the old family home, where Amy Storrs had sandwiches and cocktails ready. That was James's wife, remember? Mm-hmm. And that was where James corralled Maggie to talk about the future of the firm. Ugh. Um, everyone agreed that James's son, William Hargrave Stores, who was 29 years old and George Harry's right man, uh, should run the company. Billy Harry. And so James said, my son should take over, right? And she was like, yeah, of course. Okay. No one had a problem with that. Um, and James was like, and I think you should sell me your shares. Just, you know, get out of this, leave this all behind. <sighs> Which Maggie was utterly refusing. And the conversation apparently got quite heated. Yeah, Maggie said later that she saw herself as the custodian of George Harry's responsibilities as well as his inheritance. Um, and she had already promised Worrell that he and his wife would always have a place in her house. Oh. Which was nice because Worrell was taking it really, really hard. He was uh, barely sleeping and bursting into tears mm. at the drop of a hat. Uh, he once saw some police on the grounds of the house kind of near the stables and he like 
got really upset in a PTSD sort of a <laughs> Poor uh, an incident way. Um, Maggie and James also talked about Gorse Hall, which Maggie said she hated now and wanted to leave as soon as possible. And when James mentioned the $100 reward, hadn't gotten any takers at this point. I think this is three days after the murder. Uh, Maggie upped it to $500 without batting an eyelash. Remember, this is 1909 money, and their entire company payroll was $300. Wow. I mean, her husband was murdered. I can't blame her. Now, as we said, James Worrell was taking all this really, really hard. And Mrs. Storrs had insisted that he make a tailor's appointment to get a fitted for new livery uniform. You know, probably partly to give him something to do and partly to make him feel like he still belonged in the family kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, James didn't mention the appointment to his wife on Friday morning before he went about his morning chores. He mucked the stables, he fed and watered the horses. Uh, And then he went to do some shopping for the house in town um, and just stopped briefly one more time at home to pick up his canvas bag and then left again. Mm hmm. Now, Worrell's wife, Sarah, uh, was pretty uneasy around noon that he hadn't come back yet after a couple of hours, Um, but he had mentioned- He did all that before noon? Oh, yeah. This guy's working hard. Jesus. And they said he was a portly guy, too, so he's working hard. He's sweating out there in the morning. Yeah. Uh, He had talked about trying to buy some chickens that day, so she thought maybe he was just taking a while uh, to find a vendor. But at 5.30, she was really worried and called over her brother- who searched the stables with a constable that happened to be nearby. And they found nothing, so they went to the police station and came back with another uh, detective. And this guy does some detecting by walking back into the uh, stables that these two other guys just searched. And he found James Worrell's jacket and canvas bag at the bottom of the ladder to the hayloft. They didn't check the hayloft? Nope. They said, no, yeah, we searched. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless he came back in after. No, I don't think so. Okay. okay. Oh, geez. James Worrell was hanging from a no. beam in the hayloft. Oh, James. His toes dangling about 12 inches above a hay bale and a ladder propped against a nearby crossbeam that they figured he had used to, to you know, get himself up there. God. Uh, Lee, the detective, figured he had been hanging there at least six hours. Oh. oh, God. All right. That's so, that's horrible. And on that happy note, Carrie, I think we're actually <laughs> going to make this a two-parter. Oh. Because we're like an hour in here. Oh, my. Okay. Um, yeah. So if this feels like an okay place to leave it, this really is the end of the the murder part. And next week... End we, of part one. End of part Intermission. murder. Intermission. Uh, and we can talk about the two separate trials that were undertaken to try to find a uh, perpetrator in this case uh, next week. And then we can discuss, you know, what, what we think actually friggin' happened here. <sighs> I am baffled, bewildered, and bamboozled. Um, what do you think? What do you think? Hmm. I feel like there must be some information that I personally don't have. Like maybe there was financial issues or like I feel like there there's some piece that we don't have currently that it maybe came out during the trial or, or later in the investigation. But it, it as it stands, it feels like something's missing. And, and of course, that, that's motive, right? 
I can't think of any reason why, besides financially, maybe he's a wealthy guy. So, of course, you're going to think of that first. Um, I don't know. I don't know. What caught my attention immediately about this case, first of all, I think this is the first time in British legal history that two different people were tried and acquitted for the same crime. Spoiler alert. Oh my goodness. Okay. And so you'll get to experience how that happened next week. Uh Uh-huh. And also, you just don't... Usually you see murder mysteries that are kind of a black box you can't see inside. Like, well, no one knows what happened in that room. Yeah. Um, In this case... There are three witnesses, sorry, four witnesses to most of the crime. No, there's a big chunk of time there. I don't know. Ah, okay. Um, so I have, to, I have to make sure that I don't look this up uh, uh, at any point because I'm dying to know more. Well, that's great because hopefully our listener is too. Uh, listener, <laughs> don't go do research on your own. Don't read. What are you talking about? Come back here next week and uh, uh, listen to the second half. Absolutely. I'll be listening along with you. Oh, I, I'm, very, I'm very excited. Uh, this this story gets goofy on the back nine. Uh, okay. All right. That's a golf term. Yeah, I know. Greetings. We're Technically a Conversation, a podcast for curious people by curious people. Every week, we take turns presenting a new topic, and the other host has no idea what the topic will be. We strive to educate in a way that's loose and fun. Our topics are all over the place, from light and funny to dark and sometimes spooky. Some of the topics we've covered include urban legends, civil rights activists, vampires, pop culture icons, the supernatural and occult, spies and espionage, science and astronomy, and other weird and random things. If any of these topics interest you, give our podcast a shot. Listen and subscribe at technicallyaconversation.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Parental advisory. We might use strong language. It's time for Weird Science. Yeah! Piggybacking off of something I mentioned last week, an international team of researchers published a study last week in the Nature Geoscience Journal reporting discovered evidence suggesting that the Earth's inner core may have recently stopped before reversing its rotation. The Daily Meast... The Daily Meast... The Daily Beast sort of comfortingly reports, quote, while it might not destroy all life on the planet, the reversal might result in some changes to the Earth's own rotation. So that might there is really doing a lot of heavy lifting, I I think. This is real? Yes. You may recognize this as being the basic premise of the 2003 sci-fi thriller The Core, where the Earth's inner core stops rotating and a group of scientists are tasked with burrowing under the crust and nuking it to get it spinning again, sort of an Armageddon pastiche. Ideally, we won't have to resort to quite such drastic measures. Quote, it has effects on the magnetic field and the Earth's rotation and probably the surface processes and climate, Xiao Dong Song, a seismologist at the Sinoprobe Lab at School of Earth and Space Sciences at Peking University and uh, the co-author of the study told the Daily Beast in an email, quote, hard to say good or bad, but something to pay attention to as part of the Earth's global change. They don't know why this happened? 
Not quite. I I don't think. Well, okay. It, it seems, if not really bad, like, hear me <laughs> out. Pretty fucked up. Song and his co-author, Peking University research scientist Yi Yang, measured changes in both the waveform and travel time of seismic waves from earthquakes that passed through the inner core since the 1960s. In their research, they found that in 2009, temporal changes in the waveform shape simultaneously and consistently disappeared, suggesting the inner core stopped rotating probably around this time. So I guess the stop wasn't a problem because we're still here unless we're in some sort of alternate timeline, which people have speculated on. But let's hope that the core spinning in reverse isn't going to be an issue either. We've got kind of enough to deal with right now without some Roland Emmerich movie playing out on our planet. That's when you said it was something was based on it. I thought you were going to say Geostorm. It's, it's very Geostorm vibes. Song and co. also observed a slight but robust opposite trend in waveforms, suggesting the core may have already begun reversing its rotation. Per the Daily Beast, the authors believe that this could be part of a seven-decade cycle in which the core spins and reverses. This cycle coincides with the changes in the Earth's magnetic field. The researchers have explained that they're uh, not too worried that we're going to endure any apocalyptic scenarios and that it won't strongly affect the Earth's magnetic field and or create a total pole reversal. So that's fun. That's was, fun news. Was total pole reversal on the table? I don't, I don't know. I don't know anymore. In podcast-related news... It's Calls From Beyond. Use the energy within this environment and speak through that. We've heard from one of our listeners on our website voicemail, which I honestly didn't even realize we had. So props to Shar for figuring that one out. You can leave your own message for us, apparently, by going to AintItScary.com and clicking the little purple microphone button on the bottom right of the screen. Or uh, you could call our Google voice number at 203-666-5529. We've already got spam calls there, so... Leave us a message, and, and it won't be a spam call, and that'll be nice. Oh, won't we love it? Here's what Shar had to say. My name's Shar. I'm a uh, listener of the show. In fact, I only just caught up today. Uh, having listened to the minisode on the curse of the Bambino, I wanted to talk about a Philadelphia sports curse. In 1987, a building was built, uh, the First Liberty Center, which was taller than uh, Philadelphia City Hall. Now, there was a gentleman's agreement that nobody should build higher than the statue of the, uh, William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania, on top of uh, City Hall. And so this was broken, and it set off allegedly a curse that uh, no Philadelphia sports teams would win any championships after that point. So that was true. Um, the Phillies lost a f- few World Series that they got into. Uh, Flyers lost the Stanley Cup championship. Eagles lost four straight years of making it to, um, I don't know if it was fully the Super Bowl, but at least the playoffs. And finally, in 2007, the Comcast Center, which is now the tallest building in Pennsylvania, uh, Philadelphia, excuse me, was being built. And they decided at the top of the spire, they would put a little statue of William Penn, just kind of as like a little gag to the joke. And actually... One year later, at the 2008 World Series, the Phillies would end up winning their first championship in a long time, breaking the curse. 
Well, it just goes to show you, never cross a Quaker. <laughs> never. Uh, and I, I just love this. I love that you called in to share this with us, Shar. Uh, I've never heard of this particular curse, actually. So thank you for giving us a call and sharing it. It seems that William Penn is, uh, well, he's probably smiling down on Philly sports now because we're going to see how that all shakes out for the Philadelphia Eagles at the Super Bowl next weekend because they're playing. Mm-hmm. Uh I mean, I, I guess they're they're doing just fine. They did win a few years ago, right? The Eagles? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so thanks again for calling in, Shar. Uh, we're so psyched that you're all caught up with the show. And um, listeners, we love any stories like this, whether it's little things you want us to cover, little things you want to share with us, or even personal experiences that, that verge on strange and bizarre. Um, we love hearing from you guys. And uh, we even got a few happy birthdays to Poe after last yes, we week, did. which was so kind. And he did have a happy birthday. Um, so yeah, so we love connecting with you guys. We're always on social media. We're always answering messages or whatever. So just feel free to, to you know, chat us up but try not to tell us that we're like psychos or racists or something because because that hurts my feelings that's it for this episode of ain't it scary with sean and carrie like us on facebook and follow us on twitter and instagram at ain't it scary and check out our website at ain't it You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain't it scary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google voice number 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We sure will. Special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons already joining us over there. And um, by the way, more and more having kind of a lively, ongoing conversation on our Patreon-exclusive Discord channel. Yeah, we're really enjoying that Discord. And so thank you to Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, uh, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Ira, Kate Pope, Haley, Jamie Berg, and our newest patron, Aussie Sean Downs. Am I, am I going to try it? I don't know. He might cancel his patronage. And our newest patron, Aussie Sean Downs. You sound like... Steed Bonnet from Our Flag Means Death. Do I? Yeah, he's on New Zealand, so there's there's proximity. Oh, I know. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Other Sean. And I'm sorry, Other Sean. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. <laughs> Something is crazy. introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing 
that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S.